0: The end of the world, I think, always fascinates us, doesn't it? I mean, we, we inevitably think about the future and humanity seems fairly mesmerized by an apocalyptic finish to history. And likely, here's the thing, likely because we find the notion of that climactic day of the Lord, that event When God will come to complete history and render judgment either for blessing or curse upon those in covenant with him. We find that notion embedded even in the earliest chapters of scripture. So that's why we have Genesis 3 read for us earlier. uh, And that was a helpful reading because I'm going to think a little bit about verse 8. And it got good emphasis there. So we know in that chapter, just to hash this out, how how humanity knows this coming of God is a is an event to look forward to. We know Adam was tested not to eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam had passed that test, he would have been eternally confirmed in righteousness. And then just after Adam's send, though, we find what might seem like this odd little verse in Genesis 3.8. It says, "...and... They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden now here's the here's the interesting bit about this so the ESV makes it sound like God is kind of on a leisurely walk amongst the trees of the garden but you know even in sort of in the evening breeze in the cool of the day but I, I think we can be more specific than that here. The walking here is not a slow walking, but the form of the verb here is sort of a a walking back and forth. and might give the impression of stalking through the garden. Not not an evening stroll, but maybe even a really vicious pushing through the trees. Because they can hear Him coming. Note that. And then further, though, the cool of the day doesn't, I don't know if that does justice to what's going on here. So if we think, I know this is a lot about Genesis, but I think this is this is helpful as we lead into where we're going. So you see in the ESV footnote there that this word for cool of the day could mean wind of the day, which is why they took it to be about a breezy stroll. But, but here's the thing, okay? the, the juicy bit. So the, the word for wind in Hebrew is the same as spirit as used in Genesis 1. The spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And so what if, what if actually here, God is storming through the garden in the spirit of the day, as in he is raging the garden in a fashion or spirit that shows this is the judgment coming like the day of the Lord. And that explains, though, doesn't it? That explains why when Adam and Eve hear that, they would fearfully hide themselves. And so all of that is to say that the day of the Lord has been a truth revealed to us even since the times of creation. So this isn't a new thing. This is something that even Adam and Eve knew in the garden. And there has been no shortage since then of true biblical revelation and unbiblical speculation about the end of the world ever since then. But, so here's the thing, we're in 1 Thessalonians. Let's get to that. We're working through it, seeing Uh, We've seen that Paul recounted his need to know how the new Thessalonian Christians were enduring in faith. And so Paul wrote this letter to them to be words of hope after he heard back from Timothy that they were doing well. And this is supposed to be something to encourage them to persevere. He exhorted them in the Christian life. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13, he began to answer some questions that it seems they had sent to Paul through Timothy. So Paul assured them in the last passage that we saw last time that all Christians living and dead will take part in the resurrection at Christ's coming. And then now we get to this bit where Paul addressed more specific aspects about Christ's second coming. And what we will find tonight is that this description of the suddenness of Christ's coming had two functions. So it was comfort for Christians that our Savior is certainly returning. but it was also a severe warning for unbelievers that there is no time to hesitate about coming to Christ because he may return at literally any moment. So the main point in light of that is that because Christ's coming is imminent, could be sudden anytime. We should all live consciously in light of it. So because Christ's coming is imminent, we should all live consciously in light of it. And we'll think about this in three points. An exhorting point, an evangelistic principle, and an encouraging purpose. So first, let's look at an exhorting point. So in this section, we want to, or I want to, and you will with me, uh, I want to explore Paul's major point for what he wanted the Thessalonians to do since Christ. So in light of the fact that Christ will return suddenly. And to see that, we simply need to take note of this passage's outline. It's not difficult, really. So the section's big payoff is, again, a pastoral concern. And so just as we saw last time that Paul's exhortation not to doubt that all believers will take part in the resurrection in, in chapter, at the end of chapter four ended with Paul saying, therefore encourage one another with these words. So we also see in this passage that Paul ended by saying, therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So, we can see that his concern was to ensure that Christians used this information for a pastoral end. Paul wrote this material to reassure and comfort people about Christ's future work for us as His people, namely, security about what it means for Christ to return for His people. And we've... We've seen though, this, haven't we, this, this theme of Christ's return appear multiple times throughout this letter. Paul wove it into his reflections on other topics specifically to remind the Thessalonian church about how their king will come back in that last day royal visitation. And he will condemn the rebels who have worked against his kingdom and he will bless those who have trusted in Him for their rescue, and then here in five one to eleven, Paul takes on that the topic of that second coming directly, but as we've mentioned, kept his focus on the fact that this truth is supposed to turn into useful encouragement for Christians. So, what does that what does that mean? Why why is that worth emphasizing? Well, it means that we're not allowed to speculate about this passage in a way that results in fear for God's true people. So if somebody interprets this passage, they they try to tell you it means something in a way that results in fear Rather than in making Christians afraid, rather than comfort and exhortation for God's people, well, then we know right off the face of it that they have read it entirely against the purposes for which God inspired it. So we can, we can note though another structural cue within these verses that gives us really precise insight into what paul wanted to accomplish with this discourse on the second coming so verse six if you if you zone in on verse six marks the turning point so there's sort of two sections of, of this passage and it tells us that the specific pastoral uh, exhortation paul wanted to make here so then so so then in light of everything i've said in other words let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. And so those words, so then, are drawing an inference from verses 1 to 5, which there Paul described the shocking and sudden nature of Christ's return despite what unbelievers think is happening. So think about verse 2 there. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, so it's unexpected. Nobody plans for a thief to come and rob them. It comes, that day of the Lord comes, verse 3, while at the same time that unbelievers tout about how safe and secure the world is. So it will, it will be as shocking during this perceived, perceived, Peace, as are the first surprising pains of going into labor i've not personally experienced that but i i hear that people don't plan for when those first pains are going to hit so it's something you can't anticipate to the moment you can know it's coming broadly but you don't know when and that is what it will be like for unbelievers but it will be different for believers verse 4 because we don't belong to the darkness meaning that we are not morally dark and as he already noted in verse 1 we're not uninformed that Jesus is co- or, or about the fact that Jesus is coming back even if we don't know exactly when we do know Jesus will conter- return to complete salvation that He has secured for us in His life, death, and resurrection, and began to apply to us by effectually calling us to faith you know, through the preaching of the Word, and because because we know, as this passage stresses, that Jesus is coming is imminent and sure to happen. It is a thing that we know with certainty will occur. Because we know that, we must, must, verse 6, be alert, morally speaking, that's what that's morally speaking alert, unlike those who oppose Christ and love the darkness. And let us maintain ourselves. I mean, think about this, Christian, this is this is really the, the thing you've got to keep in mind. Let us maintain ourselves like we are actually anticipating Christ's return. This, this isn't one of those doctrines for the systematic theology textbooks that just stays over there and we sort of know it. Not that any of them are. We should actually live like we believe this is going to happen. Because it is. There is a real divide as we see in verses 7 and 8, between the way that believers and unbelievers think about the world. We do not use the night as an excuse, an opportunity for, or as a way to hide our heinous acts, as unbelievers do. Instead, we belong to the day. Now, what is that about? We, we conduct ourselves at all times, as though our actions are visible to all. That's that's why it's in the day. I mean, that's what that's talking about. People can see what you're doing. Why do we do that? Because we know all of our acts, everything we do, is always visible to God. We live in the day like we are in the day because we know we can always be seen by our King. And so the exhorting point is to live in a way that we would here get this i mean live in a way that we would not be ashamed if Christ returned to find us doing whatever we are doing we must live alert aware of Christ's return not not in fear we'll stress that again later but in hope that Christ will provide better blessings at His coming than anything sin offers in this age. Do you see the reasoning of that? This is not just self-denial. This is trust that what Christ will bring is better than the filth that sin offers. And we've got to keep that in mind. We'll turn now, though, to our second point. An evangelistic principle. So in the last point, we considered the way in which Paul was pushing the the Thessalonians not to forget that Christ was coming and how his main exhortation was that we, we shouldn't drift into living like the world who will be caught totally unaware, not only in their false sense of security, but also in their flagrant sins by Christ's return. Now, as we think more about this many have have taken these verses and they they've turned them into a warning to frighten christians by reading it as as we mentioned in passing last week about dispensationalism they they read this passage to be about a a secret rapture where christ will come back and remove all christians from the earth leaving the unbelievers behind so so in that view dispensational view christ comes back secretly despite the the fact that there's trumpets and shouts that resemble military commands and that sort of thing so christ comes back secretly to snatch christians up in this rapture which will be followed by seven years of tribulation on earth during which others have the opportunity to come to Christ somehow, despite the fact that there won't be any Christians left to preach the gospel, um, and no one can believe unless they hear, which seems to be problematic. And then after these seven years, though, this view says that Christ's visible second coming, in contrast to the secret one, will occur, even though that's really sort of the third coming. Um, so in America, to, to give you a little bit why this actually matters um, to me, at least in America, we, we see these campaigns aimed at Christians trying to get us to, to buy things like, like buckets of, uh, imperishable foods, where you just sort of take the powder and you mix it up with water and you get lasagna. Um, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Uh, and we're supposed to store these in in bunkers in preparation for the end of the world since you know Christ is coming but here's here's the bit that is relevant really relevant here we know Christ is coming but you can't really know if you're christian enough to be snatched up in the rapture which of course leaves us all terrified and if all that Sounds a little bizarre from what we've seen so far in this passage, then, I mean, rest assured for whatever it's worth, it seems a bit bizarre to me as well. Because a plain, natural reading of this text that considers how it comes directly after Paul's description of the essentially simultaneous resurrection of dead and living believers at Christ's coming at the end of chapter four indicates that the coming here in chapter 5, is the same coming where the resurrection takes place. So our, our verses that we read here from chapter 4 explained what Christ... So here's the, here's the distinction. Chapter 4 at the end explained what Christ will do at His coming. And this beginning of chapter 5 described the sudden and unexpected nature of that coming. And what we what we gather from that, I mean, noting crucially again that Paul ended both of the I mean, I can't stress this enough, noting that Paul ended both of these passages with basically the same note of pastoral encouragement or that they needed to be encouraging one another, what we can gather is that these descriptions are meant to give hope, not fear to God's people. And so there's, this is not about how you need to store food for the end of the world. This is about, in contrast to that, this is about how full of hope you should be. Because your Redeemer, your Rescuer and Savior might come to complete your rescue literally at any moment. And that should fill us with hope. Okay, so now, I know, right now you might be thinking, uh, Harrison, you've banged that drum already and we thought this point was about evangelism. And you're right, and here's when we're going to get there. So, these verses are a comfort for God's people, but that does not mean that they should not cause fear for anyone. So, in fact, this should be a terrifying realization for everyone who does not trust in christ and so let me speak to you for a moment if that's you in many of the discussions that i've had with unbelievers over the years they they have had a sense that yes they might even find this christian gospel acceptable to some degree but but they'll get around to it you know, I'll believe that a little bit later and, and I'll get around to living in light of it eventually once I'm older and I've done all the godless messing about that I want to do. And if you, if you think that way, you should consider this passage really carefully. Because what's clear here is that we cannot guarantee or count on our time snaking on indefinitely. And inasmuch as this passage emphasizes the suddenness of Christ's return, it puts its textual finger right on an important evangelistic point. There may not be time to dawdle. There may not be time to delay you, I mean you could take your chances because there may be time but Paul indicated in our passage that the return of Jesus could happen at any second and will happen without warning and that point was true 2,000 years ago And so, how much more imminent is his coming now? And if his coming is that much more imminent today, how much more urgent is it that you would turn to Christ in faith now for rescue? This this passage presents a stark contrast between believers and unbelievers for a very important reason. There are the children of the day and light who pursue sobriety, not simply in matters of drink, but in all matters of morality. And on the other hand, there are the children of the night who use the night to cover and hide their drunkenness. And I would say, we can extend this to say not simply in matters of drink. Because if you're an unbeliever, Maybe you don't use the night to hide your drunkenness on liquor. But maybe you use it to hide your time of looking at pornography. Maybe you use the times when eyes are not upon you to speak disparagingly to your wife or to deride your husband. Maybe you use your Spare time to look into reasons not to believe in God. And it's telling to me that someone would need to research reasons not to believe in God if you sincerely thought it was just obvious that He doesn't exist. Your fabrication of reasons to deny our Creator and the return of our Lord and He will judge all people is simply nothing more than rebellion against our triune God. And the Lord Jesus Christ will return like a thief in the night, unannounced and unexpected. And you may feel safe and secure and you would be totally caught off guard. But here's the thing, He is only delaying His return to give you time to repent. But we should say also, maybe you, Christian, maybe you fully accept the true God and and have hope for the return of Christ. And maybe you despise the idea of trying to refute God and His Word. But perhaps... Perhaps you still use the night to hide the same kind of wicked deeds of literal drunkenness, of gazing at pornography, of being angry, mistreating others. And maybe you're good at hiding it by throwing bottles over the fence or knowing how to conceal your search history But Christian, let us be alert and sober so that we would not be found in the same condition as the children of night when our Lord returns. The evangelistic principle is to live expectantly of Jesus' return and to set ourselves right with Him. That brings us to our final point, an encouraging purpose so we we have we've looked at paul's exhortation for christians to live expectant of christ's sudden return we can't know when but we know that it's going to happen and it's going to happen suddenly And we've also seen the need for us as christians to warn unbelievers that his return will be sudden and for them will be unexpected and they should take account of that now though We need to think a bit more precisely about why this should be such a hopeful passage for Christians. So some of you might be thinking that I just laid the law on pretty thick in the last point. So how am I any different from those who use this passage for fear? Right? Harrison, you've done the same thing. The answer, though, my response to that is that I do believe in hitting people hard with the law. But the difference is I will not end without taking us back to the gospel. The law does leave us condemned and at least stinging from our failures, even as Christians. But then the gospel, in light of that, is so sweet as the message about our rescue. So there was a a TV advert when I was a kid about Disney World, the real one in America, and, uh, this advert was about, you know, these kids getting ready to go to Disney World. And so it shows these kids getting their bags packed and ready, zipping them up and everything's good to go. And then they, they drag their bags down the stairs and they get it by the door and then they're getting ready to go to bed and they get their alarm clock all set and, and so that they get up on time so that they can get ready and go to Disney World because they are excited. And then we learn that their trip to Disney World is in three months. But the point is, the point of bringing that up here is that as Christians, we should be like that for Christ's return. The this readying of ourselves should not be because of fear of condemnation, but an expectation, hopeful. No, And I don't mean that. I mean full of hope. Hopeful expectation that our Savior is returning to rescue us. We are not perfect, but we do have a perfect Savior who can rescue us even though we continue to sin each and every day. And so we should be hopefully prepared to see Him come. In verse 8, Paul referred to Isaiah 59, 17, which reads, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So Paul's point, by referring to this this verse in Isaiah, was that we should live well because we have a breastplate of faith and love and a hope helmet of salvation. It's our faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ that will protect us both from the temptations of the devil that entice us to act like children of the night and will protect us from the fires of judgment at the last day. As as God vents His wrath, upon rebellious humanity, Christ will gather us beneath His wings. He will gather those who have had faith in Him and He will remind the Father that He died on the cross so that we would experience none of His wrath. We And we see that, don't we, in verses 9 and 10. First Thessalonians 5. For God has destined us, not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. We know as Christians that we will not see God's wrath on that day because those who trust in Christ we read here have been predestined to a different eternity than God's wrath we have been predestined to an eternity of blessing and life which in which quote we might live with him the big pastoral payoff there the purpose he's writing this so that we might Live with Him. We will get there to that eternity of salvation because Jesus lived, died, and was raised for us to seat us with Him in the heavenly places. And we cannot forget this message of the Son of God who walked the earth to earn heaven for you and died on the cross to wash away every sin you would commit. So, Christians, keep that as we keep that in the forefront of our mind. Therefore, encourage one another with it. And build one another up. Let's pray.